Let me pray once again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is a word that brings us hope, and it is a word that touches reality. Father, I pray that as we look at this psalm this morning, that you would remind us that you're not just the God of church, but you're God of our very lives. You're the God who is very present in our lives, whether things are going well or things are going poorly, whether we are under a, a time of a season of joy or a season of stress and persecution and temptation. Remind us that, that you are a God that we can cry out to for help, that you hear and respond. So we pray that, that we would see in this text just how great you are, just how worthy you are of our praise. I ask that you would do this for the glory of your Son and for our joy. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning is our fourth and final uh, sermon in uh, the Church Improvement Series. It's a series that we do each year, uh, and during this time, we look at either one or multiple of our core values. But this year, our focus has been that of prayer. Our third core value is that we believe that without Christ, we can do nothing. Therefore, a growing devotion to both corporate and personal prayer is vital. And we began this series by looking at Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, and our need to be continually strengthened by Christ to faithfully, fill, uh, faithfully live our lives. And Paul prays, uh, as he prays, he ends that prayer with uh, these words of great hope. Ephesians 4, uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians 3.20, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so we're given this great hope of being connected vitally to our Savior. And then, uh, and so we see that in that first prayer, but then the next we turn to the Psalms and that's where we've been these last three weeks. In Psalm 51, we consider David's prayer of, of confession of sin and his humble repentance after uh, his uh, sleeping with Bathsheba. David asked God to renew and restore him completely. And we remember these verses from Psalm 51, where he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. And so we have a picture of, of first uh, being vitally connected to Christ and uh, being renewed in him. We see that fellowship broken by sin, but, but restoration and renewal coming through that prayer of Psalm 51. And then last week, Sean preached for us from Psalm 73 and helped us to consider Asaph's prayer for contentment. The psalmist confessed how he had envied the arrogant the arrogant, which seemed to always find success, even when his foot slipped. The arrogant and the ungodly found their success, but then through the psalm, that coveting turned uh, its gaze onto the Lord and then to praise. And that's where we find in Psalm 73, 25, these beautiful words, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's a great truth. 
to be vitally connected to our, the one who is our portion. And what do we find in all of these prayers that we've looked at over these past weeks? We, desire, we find a desire for right relationship with God, to be rooted in his love and to see him for who he truly is, worthy of all of our praise and glory, all of our affection. And as we have said, as I've said, and as Sean said last week, the point of this series is not to lay a guilt trip on us for not praying as faithfully as we ought to. Instead, our desire is to encourage us in our life of both corporate and individual prayer. And instead of adding an additional burden, the burden of prayer onto our lives, I want us to press toward our Savior, to see him for who he truly is, and to run to him, for he's truly glorious. He's the one who brings life and who restores. He's the one who takes the weight of our burden off of our shoulders and he places it on himself. Our God is the eternal king over all and he himself is the refuge of his people. It's what we've seen throughout these texts. And as God's people, it's something that we know is true. But often we still struggle to pray. And why is that? Well, in part, it may be what Paul prayed for in Ephesians 3, that we need to be strengthened in our inner being so that we might be able to comprehend the love of Christ, which is, as he says, beyond understanding. We need help to comprehend that which is incomprehensible. Maybe that, like David, we have sin that we need to honestly confess to the Lord. Maybe that's what's standing in our way of going to him. Or perhaps like Asaph, we need to work through our discontentment with what God has given us to see that he indeed is our true portion. There are a lot of other reasons that we could name, but ultimately each of these represents something that has gotten in our way of seeing who our Savior is and of being in intimate relationship with him. In our text this morning, we will deal with one more psalm, one more prayer. But instead of a need to better understand God's love or a need to confess sin or work through an internal battle of discontentment, what we find in our text for this morning is the psalmist is is experiencing something quite different. It is suffering from external trouble. He's being pursued. He's being oppressed. He's literally being hunted by what the psalmist says is the wicked. And, and uh, you may, if you have the NIV, you're going to see that it's uh, translated as the wicked man. This is an individual who is hotly pursuing him. The word that gets used more probably these days is abuse. But that's a pretty weighted word. And so I don't want to just throw that out, but we're going to unpack that a little bit through the text Over the years, I've counseled some individuals who have been victims of this type of suffering. Some have been uh, through the hand of an abusive spouse. Others have been from a coworker, care workers, parents. This situation is real. It's still happening today. But David Pallison adds that Psalm 10 is also for the family in Sri Lanka that must live uh, amid the constant uncertainty about where, where the next uh, terrorist bombing might occur. It's for the worker on the shop floor being persecuted for her faith because she won't join in drunkenness and immorality. 
It's for the college student whose professor has an ax to grind against God. It's for the family that lives in a high crime neighborhood. It's for the recent widow on whom a home repair scam preys. It's for anyone who is under assault from external temptations. It's for anyone exposed to the intellectual culture or the mass media culture of this modern and postmodern age. We live in a world where a roaring lion prowls, where many people are not friends wishing you welfare, but enemies wishing to use you and to harm you. I mean, that really describes our day, doesn't it? And I'm going to say it at the beginning and I'm going to say it at the end. Right? Before we go any further, if you are in a situation that does not seem safe to you, if you're in a relationship that's abusive, I want to encourage you to tell someone. You can talk to me or a small group leader uh, or an elder. We, we want to help you. So I want to say it at the beginning. Right? This, is, this is not just, uh, I'm going to give you scripture and just say, go, go deal with this. We do want to help you if you're in the midst of that. But there's also hope within the text. There's hope within the scripture because we serve a God of hope. And as I prayed, there's often a disconnect between what we believe and affirm here uh, on church on Sunday and what we experience in our everyday lives. Because it can feel, feel very lonely when you're under attack. It can feel like the world is closing in on you. All uh, closing in, is, it, like it's coming down all around you. It can feel as though God is absent, far away, or just, just doing something else, paying attention somewhere else. But in moments like this, Psalm 10 becomes, in a way, a kind of guide for us as we walk through this journey. And so through this psalm, we're reminded that even when we are under attack, the Lord is the eternal king who is the refuge of his people. Therefore, as God's children, we cry out to him. We cry out to him. That's our first point. Uh, or actually, all the points are, are how we cry out, for him, cry out to him and help. So the Lord is the eternal king who is the refuge of his people. And we cry out to him as his people for help when first the Lord seems far away. So we, we find at the beginning a question. Verse 1, the psalmist opens with, I would say, a very honest question. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And this question that's asked here, I don't think we should view it as accusing God. Maybe it's not even asking God uh, to give an account or uh, for, for an answer, but maybe more for action. But I should say that we can ask this question from different standpoints. As the, the psalmist is doing, I think it is a a place of faith. It's a cry of faith. In trouble, the psalmist wants God, but feels so overwhelmed and isolated. And so one could be a cry of faith, but we can also ask this question from a place of unbelief, a cry of unbelief. And in that, we're expressing unbelief, hatred, accusation. And in the midst of trouble, it's blaming God. Why do you stand so far away, God? What's your problem? This isn't fair. I shouldn't have to deal with this. And sometimes in the initial 
gust of emotions, uh, when we are under attack, it can be difficult for us to know where we're coming from. It might be a mixture of, of a cry of faith and a cry of unbelief. It might be half unbelief, half belief. It might be groping for God. It might be wondering if all of this God stuff is actually real. But what we find, I believe, in Psalm 10 is the psalmist asking very intimately and directly, directly to the Lord. He says, you, Lord, you, speaking from a place of Desolation. The psalmist asked the question from a place of trust in the Lord, a Lord who is great, a place not of contempt for a God who seems uh, uh, uncaring. And as it becomes later, uh, clearer later in the psalm, I think what he's doing is he's asking God to act according to his covenant promises. And so we begin, we cry out as God's people. We cry out for help when the Lord seems far away. We want him to be near. We also cry out for help when we see the wicked prosper. When the wicked seem to prosper. And this next section, it is the longest. So from verses 2 to 11, we get one of the most expansive, robust, I should say, descriptions of the thoughts and actions and emotions of what the psalmist called the wicked. And it's a description of someone who hurts other people. That's their intention. And as we read through this, as we work through this, we we realize that the psalmist spent time thinking about and taking time to describe the kind of person who uses and misuses and abuses others. He spells out the reasons for his upset and the inner workings of those uh, who harm him. So, There's a lot that could be said in these verses, but I I just want to draw out a few of the ways that the wicked man is described here. And the first thing I think we see is that of arrogance. Arrogance. Someone who is arrogant, someone who is self-ruled and self-exalting. And that arrogance is expressed in what he pursues, his worship and his confidence. And let's look at those. So first, expressed in what he pursues. Verse two says, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. And then he says, let them be caught in the schemes that they've devised. In his arrogance, what we find is a picture of someone who's consumed with and by the things they do to others. They burn. And this burning pursuit describes the the arousal of their evil desires. They pursue uh, those who they, they believe to be helpless or weak persons. What the text call the poor, the afflicted. And they do it in order to further their own self-interest. Their, their, the evil seeks out victims. Calls a, a number of things, as I said, poor and afflicted. And if you think about it, in ancient times, the poor were, were often looked down upon. And they often didn't have anyone to protect them. Think about Ruth. Right? Ruth's husband died. And he was, she was with her mother-in-law so that they came, in to, uh, they, came, they came back into the city and the city was in an uproar. Here's two women in the ancient Near East, very vulnerable, without protection. Imagine how easy it would have been for someone to take advantage of, of Ruth or Naomi. Fortunately, God takes care of them, but 
we get the picture of who these poor might be, who these uh, vulnerable might be. But as I said, in ancient times, they, many times they were looked down upon. As Naomi said, don't, don't call me Naomi anymore. Don't, don't call me blessed. Uh, call, call me Mara. Because bitterness has, has touched my, God has touched me in bitterness. Often that poverty was seen as evidence of God withholding his blessing. I think that's why it's so shocking when in Luke 6.20, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus wasn't saying that poverty in itself was a blessing, but it, was a, it is a blessing when it's accompanied by trust in God. Jesus constantly gave special care to those on the fringes of society, people who bear God's image, but who are treated as trivial and objects of oppression. The psalmist says that they will be, uh, the psalmist then asks uh, God to catch them, that they would be caught in the schemes or the, the traps that they have devised for themselves. In other words, what he's saying is, and we don't know really, I don't know the best way to, to understand it, it's either let them be caught red-handed in what they're doing or let them fall into the same trap. Think of them as hunters and they dug a trap for the weak, God help them to fall into that trap. Why? Why, why such uh, words for the wicked? Well, let's, let's go on and let's learn more about him. In verse 3, he says, For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there's no God. As I said, his arrogance was not only in what he pursued, but his arrogance was in his worship. The wording is very interesting in verse 3. Right? So it says the wicked boasts in the desire of his soul. That word boasts is used elsewhere in the Psalms uh, to describe what people do in worship to God. They boast in the Lord. They, their praise is in the Lord. And so the wicked boasts in the desires of his soul. That word for desires is not mean wicked desires. It's the same word that will be used then in verse 17 for the righteous. And so what we find is that here, the wicked man, he is still worshiping, but he's not worshiping God. He's worshiping himself and his own wickedness. The wicked man worships himself, his own agenda, his own gain. All his thoughts reflect that he does not believe in God. He's living for himself. One commentator actually even noted that uh, the word, it says that the one uh, greedy for gain curses and renounces uh, the Lord. Um, he mentioned even that wording could be viewed as, a ble as blessing. Uh, and so what, what he's saying is that, that all of these words go together um, you may see actually a footnote in, in your uh, text there. It's, it's like a different translation. Um, it says that, uh, that he blesses one greedy for gain. In other words, he's worshiping, but he's worshiping himself. He's living for himself. People are his victims. But the, the third part of the, the confidence that he has, or his arrogance, is reflected in his confidence in himself. And we see this in verse 5 and 6. He believes he's unstoppable. He cannot fail because he only sees himself. 
Verse five says that his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. But as for his foes, he puffs at them. He scoffs at them. In his heart, he says, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. What what we're seeing is a description of uh, the righteous man is describing the wicked. As, as he's saying, God, whatever judgments you have, he doesn't see them. They're out of his sight. And so he doesn't think he has any consequences for his actions. He's describing the kind of person who would lie to his family about his whereabouts and about his work schedule and then go and drain the family savings on his gambling addiction. It's the child who fabricates a sleepover so that they can go out and get drunk. I was once told by uh, an alcoholic that I should never trust the word of an alcoholic because he said, they always lie. I said, always? And he said, always. I said, so like even right now? thought I caught him there. And he said, uh, and I asked him, you know, even right now, I asked him and he told me that what he was saying probably was the only truth that I could really trust from him. And he went on to explain to me that for him, he had lied so much to cover up his drinking that it had finally become a habit. And he would catch himself lying about meaningless things. He said even his favorite color, he, he just would lie about it. Seems ridiculous, but, but that was what was at work in him. And the wicked man, unless he repents, the wicked man's actions will ultimately lead him to live as a practical atheist. He, he might claim to be a Christian, but he acts as if God doesn't exist. He believes that he has everything under control and that he will never be caught in his lies. His ways always seem to prosper, and that prosperity is built upon deceit, upon anger, upon Deception, intimidation. Verse 7 says that his mouth is filled with cursing and uh, deceit and uh, oppression, just as I said. His, under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. And we hear the word cursing these days and we think of inappropriate language. But it probably, just as, it just as likely, might mean uh, oaths or, or promises that he makes. And so just like the person who described, I just described it, you can't trust his word because he's always lying. Even if he's promising, his mouth is filled maybe with promises, but with also deceit and oppression. And then starting in verse 8, we see that he is described as a predator. He's a hunting lion. Verse 8, he sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he might seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink and sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He will never see it. And so here is the description of the wicked man. And one of the things that we need to realize about the wicked man, or for that matter, the wicked woman, is that he or she is a deceiver. And based on verse 5, probably a pretty good deceiver at that. Right? Verse 5, what does it say? 
His ways prosper at all times. If we take this psalm seriously, we need to realize that any one of us has the potential to be fooled by a well-practiced and convincing liar. We all need to be on guard. And there's another startling fact that, that we find in verse 7. Right? If you look at the cross-references in your Bible, you'll probably see that uh, Psalm 10.7 is quoted in the New Testament. In particular, Romans 3.14. Let's actually turn there for a moment. So Romans chapter 3. And starting with verse 10, it says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. And then verse 14, Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. This isn't a word-for-word quote uh, because Paul is actually quoting from uh, the Greek version of the Old Testament. But the meaning is clear. The connection, I think, is clear. That this, is, uh, this passage this is a passage that we often look to in order to, to prove that no one's innocent, that, that all of us are sinful. Everyone is equally guilty in our sin before God. And that really out of and that really out to serve, it also serves as a reminder to us uh, that the wicked man isn't just someone out there in the big bad world. It serves as a reminder that the wicked man very well may be found within our midst, within our church. But I think that the bigger reminder is that the same seeds of deceit and anger and selfishness can be found in each one of our hearts. It's only by the God's hand of mercy that prevents any one of us from becoming just like the wicked man. I want to highlight, though, just one more thing that we find once again in verse 8. It says that he sits in ambush. And we know from passages like Romans 3 that none of us are, are innocent. It says that, I'm sorry, verse 8. I didn't read the whole thing. Right? He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He, uh, he murders the innocent, right? And, and I, you know, we read that. We're like, well, wait a minute. I thought nobody was innocent, right? But we need to know and we need to wrestle with the, the sinfulness of returning evil for evil. That, yes, it's true that we're all sinful, but... The psalmist is also not afraid to uh, camp out on the fact in a very vivid and terrifying description that predators lurk uh, in, in, uh, in, in an effort to prey on those uh, who would otherwise be innocent. They've done nothing to deserve uh, what the wicked do to them. They've set a trap for them. Now, what are these traps? Uh, we don't have time to really talk about all of them um, or maybe even very many of them and I think that would get us too far uh, off course. But I do think that one of the schemes or one of the traps that's been laid out by uh, the wicked comes in the form of what we might call adopted language or at least that's what I'm calling it, adopted language. 
And what do I mean? Well, our society has picked up language similar to what we find in the psalm and not surprisingly twisted the definition a little bit, changed the, the understanding a little bit. And so we would, we would all affirm, both inside the church and outside the church, that it is universally understood that it is wrong, it's wicked, when the more powerful, such as a bully at school, preys on the weaker, right? The kid, the little weak kid, and, and makes him give him his lunch money. But today, many today believe that, that the more weakness a person can amass, the more they can claim uh, that they're a victim, the victim of, of, of poverty, of persecution, of oppression. And it's almost like they're collecting it. Well, I'm, I'm here and this, and I'm weak here, and I'm this. But there's a problem with that type of thinking. That language is, uh, usually, is often used, I should say, in an effort to take away power from the oppressor and to do what? To give it to the oppressed. but that doesn't go well. Let me just say that as a philosophy, I think it is a wicked scheme that's used in an effort to, to turn the tables so that the one who is oppressed can now oppress the oppressor. Let me just say that I don't think that's what this psalm is really talking about. And, and I think we need to be really careful when we hear words like oppression and, and the poor we need to be very careful to take our instruction, our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of the world around us from the scriptures. We need to not plug our ears when the Bible uses words that our society has adopted and wrongly applied. We have to guard ourselves from another one of Satan's wicked schemes. And I think that is to distract us from the message of what God's word is actually saying in an effort to make us ignore the reality that, that there really is such a thing as oppression and as affliction. In an effort to, to lead us to downplay or even justify the wicked. Ultimately, to take our eyes off of God and his eternal kingship. You see, when we, we take what, uh, usually it's in politics and, and in the media, when, when we take their definitions and apply them to the scriptures, or we say, well, I know they're wrong, so this must be wrong. We're in a lot of danger. Of what? Of falling into a trap. I think it really is a trap. You see, the Lord is the eternal king who is the refuge of his people. We cry out to him when the Lord seems far away, when the, the wicked seem to prosper. And we cry out for help to the Lord who listens. Right? There are oppressed. The scriptures tell us that. It just isn't, doesn't look exactly how the media wants to portray it always. But we shouldn't ignore that fact. But we cry out to the Lord who listens. Look at verse 12. It says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you know mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and, the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness 
to account till you, found, till you find none. See, the wicked man may believe that God doesn't exist or doesn't hear, but the truth is that he does. And we see in, in these verses why we know that the questions at the beginning, why God, do you stand so far away? They were coming from a place of faith because he doesn't turn his back on God, but, but the, the, the faithful man, the psalmist here, cries out to God and affirms God's power and, and his ability to do something, his values. You see, the true contrast between the psalmist and the wicked man is that the psalmist asks God to take notice, to arise, and to remember, and to take action, to lift up his hand. The, the psalmist finds refuge in God alone. Whereas the wicked man, he finds his refuge in his own lies, in his own deception, in his own traps. But the psalmist says that even in the midst of overwhelming oppression, even though it fe he feels distant from God, he trusts and he turns to God as his refuge and help. Why does the psalmist take so much time to describe the wicked man? I think it's so that well, one, it's honest. He's being honest before the Lord. But also, I think by taking the time to consider his enemy, the psalmist is able to pray specifically for their power to be destroyed. See, the wicked renounce God and believe that he will not call him to give account for his deeds. But as we saw in verse 13, he proclaims the truth that God does see and that he will call the wicked to give an account. Sin always breeds in the dark. It multiplies in the dark. So we ask God to bring it out into the light, bring it out into the open. And as we read in, in verse 15, he asked God to break the arm of the wicked and evildoer, to bring every last bit of wickedness to account until there's no more. He's not actually asking God to literally break his arm, although probably that would be okay. But, he's, but, but what he's saying is uh, the, the, the arm is meant to, uh, to represent his power. He's saying to, to, to make the evil ineffective by exposing their lies and their deceit. And this is, this is a model for prayer that we can follow too. Right? That's what we've been, the whole point of this last month is so that we would be pressed toward our Savior to cry out to him. Right? See, this, even though, right, he's, he's questioning God at the beginning, it is a prayer of faith, of finding refuge in our God and trusting him for both the timing and the outcome of the situation. It's a prayer of freedom, of letting go of our own need for vengeance and trusting that God will bring evils into account. It allows us to forgive as we've been forgiven. It is a prayer of hope, trusting that God will one day stop every evil and bring us home to be with him forever. So the psalm then ends, as we look at the very ending, of, uh, with quiet and yet powerful confidence. The psalmist's hope is based on God's truth. And so we cry out, uh, we cry out for help when the Lord seems far away. We cry out when the wicked seem to prosper. We cry out for help to the Lord who listens to the king who delivers justice. Look at verse 16. It says, The Lord is king forever and ever. 
The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart and you will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. I love what we find in verse, well, the whole Bible, right? But, but the words we see here is what does he say? The Lord is king forever and ever. What did the wicked man say? Oh, oh no one will ever touch me. The wicked man isn't eternal, but God is, our savior is. Well, the, the wicked man, maybe he says that the nation shall perish from the earth. Think about David is most likely the, the author of this psalm. So there were wicked leaders of other nations. There would be wicked leaders of Israel. Even though the nations perish, the Lord is king forever. And so the, the hope that we have is placed on one who will never, who will never go away. Will never be toppled. And then in verse 17, I love that he says that you hear the desires of the afflicted. What did the wicked do? The wicked boasted. If you read the, read the words of the wicked, he was flaunting his wickedness, speaking it out loud in front of everyone. But what does he say? You will hear the desire of the afflicted, the desire of his heart. And you'll strengthen their heart and you'll incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth, or mortal man, be translated, may strike terror no more. So whatever wickedness you might be facing, whatever oppression you or I might be facing throughout our lives, it is temporary. It might be horrible. It might be hellish. It might be worse than any the rest of us can imagine. And I will tell you, after doing counseling, there is hellish abuse that happens. Wicked people do wicked things. But God is our hope and he is our refuge. God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, will one day redeem our broken world. And on that day, every, every knee will bow down and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So the refuge of the believer in Jesus Christ is found in God's eternal and sovereign kingship. As we look uh, throughout the scriptures, even through our own histories, we see that God has indeed executed justice against various evils. But the hope of the future is it's not grounded simply that God has taken care of things, but that God has and will ultimately take care of every evil. See, the refuge of the wicked is grounded in the shaky illusion that's held together by lies, trickery, and preying on the weak. But the child of God wants to be near to God, while the wicked man wants God to go away. The wicked man mistakes God's patience and executing justice and punishing sins to mean that God doesn't care or doesn't know. But God's patience is actually meant to be seen as a kindness to allow us more time to repent, more time for the wicked man to repent. But if the wicked man does not take advantage of God's patience and turn to him, then the unrepentant 
man's hard and uh, impenitent heart will only serve to store up more wrath for him in the day of wrath when God's judgment, righteous judgment, will be revealed. So to understand the heart and the plight of the wicked man, it helps us to see him for who he truly is. Instead of getting caught in his snare or coming under his control, we're better able to get the help that we need to avoid becoming enslaved by his ways. It also helps us to continue to see our Savior. That no matter how bad the the oppression might be, the wickedness might be, it allows us to lift up our eyes and see our great God. We don't want to fall. We also don't want to fall into the same snares of anger and resentment, bitterness and revenge that marks the wicked man's life. And so once again, I, I want to say, if you are in a, an abusive situation, or kids, if someone is touching you in a way that seems uncomfortable or makes you feel icky, if you're involved in a situation that's not safe, please hear this. We want you to seek help. You need to seek help. But we know that ultimately, first and finally, comes, help comes from our living God. He hears, he helps, he strengthens, and he vindicates those who have been preyed upon. If you look for refuge anywhere else, you will set yourself up for a fall. But you can cry out to him in prayer, even in in silent prayer right now where you're seated. And let me say, if you are abusing others, if you are, if you (laughs) see this wicked man and you see that within yourself, I want to encourage you to repent. If you're abusing others, if you're living your life in the shadows, I plead for you to repent. Stop abusing others because in doing so, you're rebelling against God and you will have to give an account. But finally, please know that that whoever you are and whatever you've done or whatever has been done to you, God can be a refuge if you will trust in Christ and for his forgiveness of your sins. So even if you have been the abuser, even if you are the abuser, there is time for you to turn, to turn and repent. Right? The Lord is the eternal king who is just and good. But he will bring justice and he will care for those who have been victims of the wicked. The Lord is the eternal king who is the refuge of his people. And so we can cry out to him when the Lord seems far away or when the wicked seem to prosper because we know that he is the king, the eternal king. And so we cry out to him because he's the Lord who listens and he's the king who delivers justice. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I realize that this is such a heavy psalm, a very heavy psalm to end our month talking and thinking about prayer. But I pray that you would help us to be a people who cry out to you and who know that we can cry out to you and be vitally connected to you. 
right? That, that just like we saw in Psalm 51, that no matter what we've done, even if we are the abuser, Father, that you will allow us to, we can repent and you, you will receive us if we'll do that. And so, Father, I do pray for anyone here who, who needs to repent, that they would do so, that they would come before you and they would turn away from their sin and they would turn to you, not just out of terror, although there is much to be afraid of, but Lord, out of hope, the hope that you offer, which is forgiveness of all of our sins, the hope of life in Christ, the hope of fellowship with you. Father, give us this hope and remind us that this is the Savior This is the Savior that we worship, the one who laid down his own life because each of us in our own ways are rebellious. Each of of us in our own ways have these same seeds of wickedness and remind us that, that Christ himself received more persecution than any of us ever will and he received it so that we might be reconciled to you. And so we pray that in your mercy that you would move in us. Make us a people who know you and who who love you and who fall at your feet because you are such a good and gracious God. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us yourself. Thank you for being our Savior. Thank you for this day. Pray for the glory of our our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.